All right, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat, but only once you've met someone. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the exchange. I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, we are continuing our series of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. We are in Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah 4. Um, last week, you had some homework to read chapter 3. Did anyone read chapter 3? All those beautiful names. Great job. You got like halfway through and you're like, yeah, I get the gist. Um, that's why it was just a point, you know. But listen, Nehemiah 4, uh, I do want to share um, one thing, I guess. So today we do have a guest speaker. I'm very excited. Uh, we are in Nehemiah 4, as I mentioned. And if you've read this chapter, know this chapter, it's hard to be like, take Nehemiah 4, because it's such a good chapter, just jam-packed with so much good stuff. So I know you are going to be blessed today. Uh, his name is Eric Most. Uh, he's a friend. He teaches the Bible at CCA. He loves the Lord. I know you're going to walk away just blessed by the message today. Uh, so why don't you just give it for Eric as he comes and shares the word. Thank you, dude. Thank you. Hey, good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Um, yeah, like Josiah said, my name is Eric. Uh, I teach over at Calvary Christian Academy. As I survey the crowd, some of you I have taught. Um, some of you I teach with. Um, and I guess the rest of you I'm about to teach today. So it's a didactic endeavor through and through. Um, before we get started, I just want to say it's such an honor to be here, uh, primarily because of uh, the one who invited me. Um, Josiah has just consistently shown faithfulness. Um, as I've watched him in these last few years sort of lead and create this space that you guys are now inhabiting. And, and personally, I'm a creature of comfort, um, like very much so. I always go towards comfort. Um, where I teach, we take this trip to Mexico every year. Mrs. Lawson can attest that my entire body shuts down on this missions trip uh, because I just love comfort. If I, was, if I was on the Haiti trip with you guys, all of your team would be making fun of me. Um, and Josiah has consistently defied comfort and he's walked into faithfulness. So dude, it has just been such an honor to watch you. Um, when I come home from my church service, I tune in on the, uh, the live stream. So whoever's doing that, thank you. Um, and it's just so sweet to see the vibe of this church. Um, and dude, the Lord's working through you and it's just awesome. So thank you for having me here. You guys are lucky to have him. All right, so. Um, like Josiah said, we are in Nehemiah 4, and before I read the passage, I just want to give you a brief overview. He's done a great job of kind of giving you the background, but I just want to refresh us a little bit uh, before we dive into our passage, okay? So, if you remember, Nehemiah and the Israelites are in exile, okay? Nehemiah specifically has gained favor within the Persian government. Okay, Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem, and he asks King Artaxerxes if he can go survey the scene and potentially repair what he sees. Okay, so that's kind of really fast overview of one and two. You read three for homework. Um, okay, so our text, here's what we're going to see. Um, he's endeavoring to rebuild these walls. He's met with opposition and mocking. He continues to build. The opposition intensifies. In the midst of this opposition, Nehemiah prays to the Lord. He mobilizes his defenses and continues to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's kind of the overview. Let's read our text, uh, and then I'll pray. Starting in verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know what you guys have, but I'm reading from the ESV, so if some words are different, that's why. 
Verse 1, now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Okay, now here Nehemiah interjects his own voice. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, they heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans. You read that in chapter 3. With their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, And that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we're just grateful for the opportunity this morning to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you speak through this sinner to these sinners that we all may come to know you just a little deeper, that we may understand the depths to which you love us, and that we may walk away uh, with your radiance in the world that needs it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you're history buffs, or if you can just recall back to your high school history classes, you may remember the situation the Continental Army was in in the Revolutionary War. They were in a place that was once their comfortable home, but now it's strangely overrun and occupied by enemies. If you remember, the conditions were intolerable, the outlook was bleak, the odds were stacked against them, and their enemies seemed far too powerful. Morale was incredibly low. The situation we find in Nehemiah 4, and by extension ourselves in the 21st century, specifically in South Florida, is very different. It's very similar. I mean, how do we as Christians, with weakness inside of us and opposition against us, how do we live faithfully in this world according to Christ's will for us? In order to enter in, we need to consider a few things. We need to consider the people, the place, the plan, and finally, the power. All right, so there's an alliteration for all you English aficionados. People, place, plan, power. All right, so starting off verse 1 and 2, let's look at the people. Here's what it says. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Okay, so question one, who is Sanballat? He's the leader of the, confront, uh, the confrontation, right? And, and the, the second question, by extension, is why is he so mad, right? We saw this in chapter two as well. Same character, enraged. Everything seems to indicate that he's the governor of the region. Okay, and as the governor of the region, the success or even the presence of the Israelites in his jurisdiction is a perceived challenge to his authority and therefore a threat. Okay, so specifically in that time, land territory was a big deal. Why? Because it consisted of resources and trade routes that whatever governor subsided over that area would use to his advantage. And so if you have a foreign people group re-inhabiting this land, which is now yours, that's a threat to you, right? What we need to recognize here is like Sanballat, some people are threatened by another's success. One commentator says this, some will oppose another person because they stand to lose position or power or prestige politically, religiously, or socially. Ours is a sinful world and very few people are altruistic. They are out for themselves. Therefore, if one person moves forward, another sees it as diminishing his or her own prestige or position. Does that hit you as hard as it hit me when I first read it? Because the reality is, I think when we realize and we hear that, it's not just our adversaries that fall into that category. It's us. It's ourselves. Right? I do this. I am so guilty of this, right? So in seminary, I took Greek. And for whatever reason, in that class, I wanted to, like, show off how much I knew. And I wanted to be the top of the class. And I wanted to get, like, A's in everything, right? So my professor would do this thing where he would literally just fl like flip open to a random page of the New Testament and say like, all right, Eric, translate this. And it's like deer in the headlights. Like if you didn't do your homework, if you didn't do your work that week, like you're just going to get hit, right? And so if I got it wrong and then he called on someone else and they got it right, I would, do you guys feel that like burning inside of you and your neck gets all hot? Is that just me? No, okay, okay, good. It's you too, right? Why? Because someone else's success I perceived it as a threat to my own reputation, all right? That might be a minimal example, but extrapolate this bigger. How often do we do this uh, in the places that we work? How often 
in a meeting, maybe does someone else get complimented by the boss or someone else gets a raise? Or how many times have you looked uh, on social media, been scrolling, and you saw your friend go on that vacation that's probably super expensive, and you in some way view it as a threat to yourself, right? It's not just our adversaries that do this, it's us, and it can operate on such a deep level. That Theodore Roosevelt quote, um, comparison is the thief of joy, that rings true in this situation. Right? It's us too. We, we view it as a threat. Okay, let's look at verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it, the wall, for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Sanballat describes the people of God as a dying group here. Maybe in their last days of existence, okay? And this is largely due to the fact that they have been exiled. And so the cultural opinion of them is like, all right, as a civilization, they've had their day, they're done now, right? A dying group, a feeble group. They use that word feeble, and that's what I want to focus on. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, it, it goes amelal. That's the Hebrew word, okay? And, and the, the image that it connotes is a withering or a dying plant, that's kind of the imagery that the Hebrew gives off, okay? And so uh, my wife and I are professional horticulturalists, and by that, I mean we're really good at killing plants, like really good. Like we go to Home Depot or Lowe's with these high hopes of like re-landscaping, and we spend, you know, like $100 on this plant and that plant, all the right soil, and then we never water it, and the sun bakes it out, and within like two weeks, it's done, right? So we have this indoor plant. Uh, we've cycled through three of them now. And, you know, we have to get the right light through the window and, like, spritz it with water. And we never do it. Uh, either that or our dog chews it up and leaves a mess everywhere. Um, and so currently on my back porch, there is the remains of our last indoor, uh, forgot what it was called. We saw them at Trader Joe's, whatever they were. And uh, it is withering, right? The leaves are crispy and brown and crunchy. And it's just, there are no signs of life. That's the image that it's being that the, that the Bible is sort of communicating to us, okay? And when you hear that charge, you're so feeble, okay? Who do you identify with? Are you more likely to be the one speaking those words, or are you more likely to be the ones receiving them? The reality is most of us, we don't want to be weak. We hear that word feeble and we shy away from it because our culture tells us that we want to be, we want to be strong. Don't be needy. Be strong, be defiant, be an overcomer. My pastor last week, uh, he used this poem, and I want to use it here. It's called Invictus. Uh, it's by William Ernest Henley, okay? And, and it goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud, under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. All right, can we just pause here and say that's maybe the most disingenuous thing anyone has ever spoken. Like if we're really honest with ourselves and life in our situation. Some of you, okay, maybe like, yeah, like overcomer. And I get that. Like that makes sense. But on a 30,000-foot view, like, grand level, like, come on, William Ernest Henley, like, conquer cancer. How about that? Like, no, you're not. Like, 
There are things in life, if you have lived even a little bit, you understand that we are feeble as a people group. As God's people even, we can be incredibly feeble. And that's a good thing. Because admitting our weakness and our need is a prerequisite to the love of Jesus, right? He calls us sheep. He doesn't call us lions, right? I don't know if any of you guys have been around a sheep. It's kind of a pathetic creature, right? Lions are the ones that we want to be like. He calls us sheep, right? We're feeble. We are feeble. Compare Invictus to, maybe you guys are familiar with um, G.K. Chesterton. You're familiar with this quote where someone asks him, uh, you know, in the newspaper, what's wrong with the world? And he responds, dear sirs, I am. Chesterton understood that he was feeble, right? He understands that in the grand scheme of things, we are not ultimately the masters of our own fate. Okay, so Sanballat shows us that there are problems inside of us, but this passage additionally shows us that there's opposition outside of us. Okay, so let's look at verses 7 and 3. Okay, let's start with 7. Verse 7 says this, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And then verse 8 says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Okay, so verse 7 and 8, we see that the opposition, it's no longer just one guy. It's no longer just the governor of the region. It's Samaria to the north, it's Ammon to the east, it's Ashdod to the west, and it's the Arabs to the south. I don't know if that's up there, if you guys can see the map. Um, They're all plotting together. So in this sense, Jerusalem and Nehemiah, they're they're very much enclosed, okay? Furthermore, let's look at uh, verse 3. Verse 3 says this. This is Tobiah now. Um, saying, to buy the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I I guess that's like an ancient Near East burn. If someone said that to me, I I wouldn't be as offended, but I'm sure it was very offensive um, back then. Okay, so what's going on here? It displays a cultural contempt for God's people, and it's ultimately defined by place. Right? It's ultimately defined by place. So we looked at people, we're feeble. We're looking at place now. So there's opposition against us in a specific place, in a culture, in a context. Okay? So in that culture, they were ridiculed. And in ours, we should expect ridicule as well. We should expect opposition. Increasingly so in today's culture. I don't think I need to convince you of this very much. You just kind of read or watch the news a few minutes and, and you'll see it. You'll feel it. Expect ridicule increasingly so in today's culture. But this is actually a great litmus test for us. It's a great way to evaluate where we're at because if you don't see it or experience it, you got to ask yourself one of two things, okay? The first question is this. Do I look too much like the world around me in that I agree with everything, right? And so, like, I agree with the ridicule. Do I look too much like the world around me? Am I not distinct enough such that I don't see or experience the ridicule? That's the first question. The second question, this is probably the camp that I fall into, am I surrounding myself with Christians and therefore not fulfilling the great commission of making disciples? Most people who know me will say, yep, that's you. I love the Christian bubble. It's warm, it's comfortable, it's safe, it's nurturing. I don't want to go out into the big bad world, right? 
I think that's a lot of us, right? That's, that's comfort. That's a lot of us. And so, of course, there's a time to gather and to be nourished together as a family, but only to the extent that we go out, right? So if we're not experiencing that ridicule, we have to answer one of those two questions. Overall, with place, I, I think what's going on here is something like, uh, have you guys seen the movies like Olympus Has Fallen or White House Down, or movies like this, right? Where they take an icon of society, of culture, of a place, a building that means so much to us, and it's destroyed, and it's supposed to create an effect in us, like holy cow, that, that place that we revere so much has been torn down, right? I think that's what's going on in the place here with Jerusalem, right? Imagine the Israelites who have heard so much about the temple and Jerusalem and its glories, and imagine going back and seeing it completely laid waste. Imagine the pain they must have felt even in the midst of them rebuilding it, right? And specifically as it pertains to place, I wonder for you all if, if there's a place for you that, that it's just, it stings a little bit when you see it. Maybe there's an, an experience you had there. Maybe it was your last job. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know what it is, but whenever you pass it or see it in pictures, whatever, it just, the, all those memories come flooding back. Maybe it's your hometown, maybe, whatever that is. All those memories come flooding back because unfortunately sin it not only taints our hearts personally, but it also reaches out into the places, right? Into the world that we inhabit, into sort of inanimate objects. It can, it can have that effect on us, okay? And so overall, take the pulse of the place that God has called you to, namely South Florida. How are you interacting with that place? And how is it interacting with you? To what extent are you shaping it? And to what extent is it shaping you? Good questions to ask, okay? So... Nehemiah, he leads his people in this task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in light of this great opposition. And how does he do it? Okay, so he has, he has the people in the place. He does it with a plan, right? How do we live as God's people with weakness on the inside, opposition on the outside? This leads us to plans. Okay, so we see this in verses 6, 9, 13, and 17. Let's check these out really quick. Okay, verse 6 is this. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Continuing in verse 9, it says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Verse 13 says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Then finally, 17 says, uh, those who carried burdens lo were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. Okay, so overall, what do we see with these verses? Okay, we see resolution and the face of opposition. We see strategy. We see courage. We see wisdom. But I think the one thing that I want to point out above all, working through it all, is this interaction between God's power and man's responsibility. Okay, And I think too often we think those things are mutually exclusive, right? We think either you trust and pray, God, and pray that God would intervene and you just wait for God to intervene, or you do it all by yourself and leave God out of it. Okay, Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, we have a tendency to say that if God is really protecting you, you don't have to post a guard. 
And if you post a guard, then you don't really believe God is protecting you. But that's not right. It's a false dichotomy, right? It's not, well, either take the medicine to heal your cold and don't trust God or pray for healing and do trust God. That's, that's a false dichotomy. Why? Because more often than not, God works through ordinary human means, right? He just works through the ordinary, and that should be really relieving to us because if we're honest with ourselves, our lives are pretty ordinary. They're more ordinary than they are extraordinary, right? God works through the ordinary. Nehemiah prayed and trusted God earnestly, but he also kept his weapons by his side and devised plans. He did both of those things. Okay, so a quick question, like, do you want to grow spiritually, right? If we're, if we're in, uh, if we're wanting to grow spiritually, there's no magic fairy dust, right? I think a lot of us think, like, there's some magic potion we can just sprinkle, and all of a sudden we're more holy than we are. In reality, just take advantage of the ordinary means in front of you. Read your Bible. Pray. Come to church participate in fellowship, take the sacraments, right? It's not like super slick and attractive and it's not Instagrammable, right? There's not like the big moments that like you're gonna Snapchat and show the world, right? It's the ordinary means of grace that God has implemented in your life. And as you work through those, you will find yourself loving him more and loving your neighbor more and loving this world more. God works through ordinary means. And so much pain and confusion is caused when we promote the false dichotomy and hyper-spiritualize things, right? I'm sure some of you can think of this in situations you've been in where someone is just like concocting a scenario that's like really just maybe a little extra, right? It's not that way, right? So for example, in high school, as I was coming to faith, right? Most of my spiritual understanding was like, okay, I guess now is the time when when God gives me a sign, right? And so I prayed as a sophomore in high school. I was like, all right, God, just give me a sign. Just give me a sign. And so I'm expecting lightning or like some huge life event that's just like God kicking the doors down, smacking me in the face and dragging me by my feet and saying like, you're mine now, right? That's what I was looking for. But in reality, the sign that I was looking for was the Chipotle sign in the parking lot as I was pulling through, parking my car, and getting lunch with my youth pastor every week, right? That's the sign I was looking for. As I look back, I realize God just worked through ordinary means of grace over a long period of time to draw me to himself. And again, that should be relieving because that infuses an incredible amount of meaning into your everyday lives. That means that the lunch you get after this service is meaningful. God isn't outside of that. God isn't just here. And then you go, it's, it's, it's incredibly meaningful. Everything, tucking your kids in at night, saying a prayer before, all those little ordinary things that feel so rote can have so much meaning if we just recognize that God works through ordinary means. Okay, so up to this point, we've talked about the feebleness in us. We've talked about the opposition against us. And we've talked about the task before us. Okay? All of this would be irrelevant without mentioning the most important part of this passage, God with us. Okay? That leads us to consider the power of the passage. Okay? So let's look at verse 14 and verse 20. Verse 14 says this, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And verse 20 um, says this, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Here's maybe the sweetest sentence, one of the sweetest in the Bible. Our God will fight for us, okay? When the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, says, remember the Lord, it's not just this offhanded, oh, hey, remember that guy, right? It's not just, oh, yeah, remember him? No, it's infused with meaning. It's incredibly significant. It's actually a covenantal phrase that the Israelites used to deliberately bring back this whole sort of nebula cloud of all of the ways that the Lord has interacted with them in the past. Okay, so when he says, remember the Lord, the huge Old Testament implications are primarily of the Exodus, right? So he's saying, remember how God ransomed you from the hands of slavery and how he led you out of that place into freedom, into the land. Remember the Lord. Exodus 14, 14, we see the same thing. Our God will fight for you. You need only to be silent, right? It's also invoking Deuteronomy 3, all of these ideas that show the Israelites' past that their God has fought for them and will continue to fight for them. Nehemiah not only arms the people physically, he bolsters them spiritually. This is rooted in the belief that God can and will overcome his enemies as he has in the past. Okay, but as Christians, we know that this is also pointing to the moment when God would fight for his people not just temporarily, but fully and forever. How do we know that? Well, ultimately because we have Jesus. Jesus, like Nehemiah, he left the comforts of the palace in the high position, and he went to identify with the people through his incarnation. As we read God's people in our passage, they were despised. We saw that in verse 4. Even as God's own son would be despised and rejected, as prophesied in Isaiah 53 and fulfilled in 1 Peter 2. The enemies of Israel of uh, Israel and Nehemiah conspired against them, just as the Pharisees and the Sadducees would conspire against Christ. Nehemiah and the Israelites, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus builds the church on the rock that is Peter. So what does that mean? As we, God's people, battle on until the end in this life, we too must heed Nehemiah's call to remember how great and awesome the Lord is in light of the cross. Why? Because Jesus on the cross, he takes our weakness, our feebleness, and he supplies it with his strength. He redeems his people, right? So Paul Turnier says this, there is indeed a reversal. God prefers the poor, the weak, the feeble, and the despised. What religious people have a difficulty admitting is that he prefers sinners to the righteous. Jesus on the cross, he not only redeems us as people, he redeems this place. He doesn't just rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he is the cornerstone to the new Jerusalem. He takes the entire world, the entire cosmos, and he makes it new. There will be no more pain or suffering because he is the cornerstone of the new Jerusalem. This world, one day, if the Bible is true, this world, one day, will be glorified without alarm clocks, dentist appointments, those life-altering phone calls, 
accidents, cancer, back pain, Alzheimer's, tears, arguments, awkwardness, tension. It's going to be without all those things because he redeems a place. He redeems the entirety. He redeems us as people, but he also redeems all of what we inhabit. Okay, he also establishes a new plan, right? Instead of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, we continue to build the church through the great commission of making disciples. And so he says, you people in this place, by his power, you go into Deerfield Beach, into Boca, into your workplaces and schools, and you declare and you demonstrate the good news of what he has done, of how he has redeemed you as people. Okay, so why does all this matter? If you are here today and you are feeble and failing, Jesus Christ, Lord of our sin and shame, as the true and better Nehemiah, will not cast you out if you repent. Okay, John Bunyan perhaps captured this best. He's an old dead pastor. Um, He recreates this conversation between Jesus and a sinner. Okay, and here's what it says. But I am a great sinner, you say but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But, but I'm a backsliding sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all of my days, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I've sinned against mercy, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have nothing good to bring with me, you say. And Christ says, I will never cast you out. The reality is, as his people, as his weak and feeble people, God loves loving us. Okay? I think that's important. We always say God loves us. The reality is God loves loving us. It's not like he signed a bad contract Right? NBA free agency is coming up, 6 o'clock tonight. I don't know if you guys care about that. It's going to be fascinating. Um, it's not like God signs a bad contract and then he has to live with it the rest of your life. And he's like, oh, gosh, this guy again. You know, it, it's not like that. No, he loves loving life into us. He enjoys it. He will never cast you out. And that, as a people then, sends you out with your hair on fire into a place with a plan to redeem as part of his mission for you, which he inaugurated on the cross. Yahweh no longer resides in the temple in Jerusalem. Instead of building physical walls, he's building you up by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Spirit dwells in you, and therefore that makes you the temple, the new temple. That welcoming, faithful, persistent, overcoming, never-cast-you-out love has the power to change you, your city, your plans, and your world. Going back to the Revolutionary War, uh, a historian found a... uh, a a letter from a a general on the field who was there in the midst of the bleakest of times. And he recounts how George Washington at the perfect time showed up. He says this, sometime in the course of the day, Washington arrived to survey the defenses and the panorama below. This is what the, the general says. 
His Excellency General Washington is present, animating and encouraging the soldiers, and they, in return, manifest their joy and express a warm desire for the approach of the enemy. Isn't that what we have in Jesus? Even more so. Right? We have someone who went to the front lines himself and led, as an example, to win the battle we couldn't win and to redeem us in ways we can never redeem ourselves, such that we are transformed for the, the place that he has called us to, to live on mission for his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, just grateful for this church. Lord, ultimately, we're grateful for your word and your gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would further equip us, that we would understand how deeply we are loved by you. Lord, we pray you give us your spirit that would enable our feebleness, that would supply our weakness with your power. Lord, that we may go out into the world as agents promoting your gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.